I've found, you know, in talking to drivers about cyclists, um, they fear the cyclist. And they fear the cyclist because they're, on some level, they're afraid of what, what they will do to the cyclist. They don't put it in those terms immediately. And they often perceive their, their fear as anger, uh, which is why we have so much conflict right now about sharing the road in places where cycling is growing. Well, that's my guest, Anne Lutz-Fernandez. She's the author of Carjacked, The Culture of the Automobile and the Effect on Our Lives. Now, maybe you want to stop right here. If you're thinking about a new car for the holidays, you're going to think twice after listening to Anne. And then maybe maybe you're a bicycle enthusiast, but... um, but you're not anti-car. Well, I understand. I appreciate that. This isn't the show for you either. And my interpretation and her book really has opened my eyes to the impact the car has, well, like she says in her title, on our entire culture, our wallets, our health, our safety, our lives. Well, I'm Frank Peters, and you're listening to CDM Cyclist, and I reach out to bicycle advocates, people in the bicycle world, and get them to sit down with me for an interview. And so Anne, she's a horse of a different color, maybe, in today's interview, but somehow I came across her book. I started reading it, and after just a chapter or two, I realized I had to get her on the show to share her with you. I think you're really going to enjoy getting to know Anne Lutz-Fernandez and her book, Carjacked. And what a great title it is. And we talk about the title, too. Well, Hi, Frank. Let's I'm get Anne Lutz-Fernandez. Thank you for joining me on the show today, Anne. Well, thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Your book, Carjacked, The Culture of the Automobile, Its Effects on Our Lives. I am nutty about your book, Anne. Do you hear that a lot? <laughs> Thank you. Well, from from some folks who've been waiting for a book like it, yes. <laughs> yeah. From people who like I would say like me before I started the research, not necessarily enthusiasm, but uh some surprise and and interest in a subject that they thought they knew, um but they realized they hadn't really thought about in terms of how it was affecting their daily lives. Mm-hmm. Well, the way you just put that, it made me think, as a young man, I always thought that I was a good negotiator. I was getting a good deal when I bought a car. I'm sure a lot of people think that about themselves, huh? (laughs) I would say that uh, about as many people who think they're wonderful drivers (laughs) think that they're they're (laughs) wonderful negotiators in the the auto dealership as well. Um, That also splits along gender lines uh, so that more men... Uh, tend to to feel comfortable and and confident going into the showroom uh, than women do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's been said for many years, right? The whole time I've been of automotive age, so that's not changing, I guess, huh? No, unfortunately, um, really too much hasn't changed. Although women, uh, for example, are the primary buyers in in most automotive um, deals, they still don't feel confident and they're probably um, wise not to feel confident um, (laughs) because the auto dealers have a lot stacked on their sides these days, more than they did a few decades ago, because we're usually going to them not just to buy a car, but to get a loan. Right. You make those points in the book, Anne, and uh, 
Well, I'm trying to think of just how best to say how your book is affecting me. I, I have described it to friends already that it's like peeling away this veil. Uh, you describe it as, it, you know, the culture of the automobile. And that's a good choice of words, isn't it? I mean, when we're immersed in our own culture, it's hard to step outside of that and, and see it for what it is. Other people have said that. Yes, and and really that was the angle at which we came at the book. My sister, Catherine Lutz, is a professor of anthropology at Brown University. And so she's been studying big systems like the military, for example, um, for a long time. And, and she really sees things in terms of culture. And I had been a business person. I'd been an investment banker and a consumer product marketer. And so we thought between the two of us, we could look at this object as a cultural artifact, but also as a consumer cultural icon mm-hmm. um, and and try to address how most people think about the automobile and live with it. Right, right. Of course, uh, you're on CDM Cyclist today, and much of what I talk about on this show has to do with uh, cycling and cycling safety. And of course, the... The threat to cyclists is the automobile. That's uh, definitely number one. A lot of people say they're afraid to get on a bicycle because of a car, and they're probably wise to feel that <laughs> concern, huh? Absolutely. And and our uh, impetus for the book really was the, the loss of two loved ones. Um, we had lost mm-hmm. a cousin in a crash, and I had lost a good friend and mentor of mine in investment banking in a crash shortly after that. So we did come into the book wanting to explore uh, how we uh, live with this um, object that we find so pleasurable and convenient, right. but at the same time presents a huge, tremendous threat. It's the most dangerous thing most of us do every day is to get into our cars and drive out of our driveways um, and make our way around the world in the way that we do. So, yes, the, the car is a dangerous object. It's obviously more dangerous to cyclists and pedestrians than it is to the drivers who um, I've found, you know, in talking to drivers about cyclists, um, they fear the cyclist. Um, <laughs> and they fear the cyclists because they're, they're on some level, they're afraid of what, what they will do to the cyclists. Mm-hmm. They don't put it in those terms immediately. Mm-hmm. And they often perceive their, their fear as anger, uh, which is why we have so much conflict um, right now about sharing the road sure, and hostility. places where cycling is growing. Right, right. And it just makes me think, I did a big bike ride this past weekend, and I saw at some places on the ride, cars trying to get past you know, this long line of cyclists and many of them maybe, let's say, tiptoeing by, but then, you know, hitting the gas pedal as soon as they could, like speed is going to, you know, get them out of the way anyway. Uh, a lot of issues there. Now, I'd like to go back for a second. You said you've been touched, you've lost friends and family to the automobile. Now, is it just me? Do you observe that there's a certain callousness in society to that? I mean, maybe only at the law enforcement level, maybe, or uh, it's kind of taken for granted, uh, the uh, destruction and mayhem of the automobile. It, we're desensitized to that to some extent, aren't we? I think that's a fair um, description to say that we take it for granted. Now, the good news is that we have seen in recent years, and really even since our book was published early last year, 
a very happy decline in the number of fatalities and injuries on, on our roads. Um, but there are still tens of thousands of people who die every year, a uh, hundred every day. Um, there are millions who are injured, uh, tens of thousands of them in ways each year that are fundamentally life-altering. Um, and yes, it, it does seem, and in our conversations with, with drivers and car owners, there seemed to be a certain acceptance that, that there was a, a level of, um, uh, of cost that society is willing to bear for this convenience. Um, there tends to be a focus by the general public on the number of incidents per mile driven, rather than the total number. Um, and because that number was declining uh, before the total number started declining, that made people feel comfortable that we were making progress and that cars were getting safer. Trying to put um, a positive spin on it, I guess. And I, I think there's a certain amount of denial. Um, yes. Most people who drive um, and who drive particularly to work uh, must drive to work. They don't have choices or they don't feel they have choices um, in other ways to get around. And so if you're going to do something that dangerous, you have to find a way to, to make it comfortable. And part Human of beings are good at that, aren't they, And Talk <laughs> about anthropology and sociology. We're good at rationalizing, aren't we, uh, as humans? Well, and if you do it every day, right, it becomes something that you, you know, well, every day I've done it safely and I'm a good, again, I'm a good driver. Yeah. It's those other crazy people on the road that I have to worry about. But there's, there's a sense that um, cars are getting safer and that is true, but there's also a, a halo effect of advertising around safety. Um, for years now, the automakers have been advertising how safe their vehicles are to the extent that um, people really do do think that cars are incredibly safe and are only getting safer. Um, and they are getting safer, but they're not incredibly safe. Again, it's still the most dangerous thing we do every day uh, if we're drivers is to get into our vehicle. And in that same time period, let's say, uh, auto, many automobiles, premium automobiles, uh, increasing horsepower, um, much more powerful and uh it's a concern yeah, the, as a cyclist. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, the and the eighties and nineties saw a tremendous growth in the size of vehicles, the power of vehicles. Um, finally, in these last few years, um, in part because of the cafe standards uh, that uh, the current administration has put into place, and in part because of gas prices and and some some sense of environmental concern, there are more people buying smaller cars, and and cars are getting uh, lighter and thus less dangerous than they were, let's say, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a time. I, I remember it so well because I was walking my uh, two boys to the local elementary school, and uh, it was nice. It was just a mile away and uh, go over a little footbridge. It was really kind of old-fashioned. Had to cross a big road. But anyway, and then you, as you approached the school, there was these whole fleets of SUVs, uh, coming and that was intimidating well you talk about uh kids being transported to school uh, by mom and and i like the way you you kind of went at that you in some early chapters i remember you describing how it's how parents see themselves you know uh taking care of their children it's part of a it's not just the act of driving them to school as much as a role that we see ourselves in. Am I describing? I'm butchering that. I'm Absolutely sure. no. <laughs> it's, it's the notion that we can show our love for our family yes. through our vehicles is something that we've come to uh, to understand again through um, through the culture, right? Because we we communicate to each other. If I'm driving my child to school and you're not, well. 
who's the good parent, right? That's so right. there's there's some peer pressures there. Uh, again, I, you know, automotive advertising, I know a lot of people like to believe they're immune to advertising. And certainly we're pretty immune to specific messages from specific brands. But we're not immune to the the relentless messaging around the, the, the category or the product. Uh, and one thing is I'm... Uh you know, preparing to talk to you on the phone in today's Los Angeles Times. Here's a story. VW exec to staff, double U.S. sales. I'm thinking to myself, oh, man, that's a, that's a lot of cars. And then I'm thinking he'll probably accomplish that if he sets his mind to it, huh? Uh, the American public, they can't get enough cars, huh? Well, uh, it turns out that, that um, you know, in a, in a tough times they can get off cars. <laughs> and so for the last few years, um, people have been owning their cars longer um, and trying to get more value out of them. What the automakers are hoping for is that there's a good amount still of pent-up demand for people who were used to buying a new car every four years and then decided to on to their car for eight years to make it through this, these tough times. Um, and they're hoping that people will um, get out there and return to the buy levels of the mid um, when we were um, selling 17 million uh, cars per year. Mm-hmm. Um, we're down now around 13 million cars per year. So we have put a bit of a pause on our car buying. Um, that's, that's new cars, of course. Used cars is a much larger number, and, and people keep buying those. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the automakers still see the U.S. market as, as a market that's um, going to rebound, and, and they hope that it will regain those levels and and some of the companies need it to regain those levels to remain profitable. Right. right. Speaking of the Los Angeles Times, earlier this month they ran a three-part series on buy here, pay here. And mm. you talk about that in the book. The first I heard about it was in the newspaper. That's a horrifying story, the financial shenanigans. Uh, they're going after people who can't, don't have the credit, can't afford a new car. And I was just uh, surprised to see uh, how few protections there were for yes. uh, people who can't afford that. That's just terrible. Yes. And uh, that was a wonderful series that Ken Bensinger did in the Times. And, and I hope it will, you know, more light will be shed on. Um, really the, kind of a seedy underworld. You know, we all say um, that when we go to the showroom, we feel like we don't have much negotiating power. But if you have a terrible credit rating, um, if you have uh, not much money, if you live in a neighborhood where your insurance rates are going to be high, chances are you walk into one of these buy-year slots and be paying multiples uh, for a car uh, to own and finance that car than the same person buying that car somewhere else uh, in, in the city um, at a more reputable lot because that person has good credit. When you think about what car culture costs the working poor, often people will focus on uh, how difficult it is to be carless. Um, but what we discovered in doing this is that it's almost worth to, to have a car and, and be one of those folks who's desperately working to hold on to it. Right. One of your chapters is all about the inequality. Uh, there's the poor uh, public transportation options for uh, many people. Poor people tend to be concentrated in the inner city. Many of the jobs out, and you call them the suburban rings. Uh, that opened my eyes to how uh, the poor are uh, challenged to uh, 
get a job, keep a job. They need a car for all of that and the financing options they have. Let's get into this whole inequality issue. Where do we start, Anne? Well, you can start at a very basic level. If you think about um, if if you're a driver, how um, much uh, a, a gas price spike affects you. And for the average American, gas is only about a quarter of the cost of, of owning and operating a vehicle. But if you are scraping by, if you're really struggling, you probably have an old clunker. You uh, probably are paying more to finance and insure that, that clunker. And every time there's a, a rise in gas prices, um, there's a concern that you might not be able to fill up to get to work. And a lot of people are um, working to keep that car that gets them to their job. And it's, it becomes a, a vicious cycle. A vicious cycle, yes. Yeah, that was really... Now, one of the things she talked about, too, I think it's at the end of a chapter, is poor credit to many people implies poor character. And you make a correlation between that and the few, like, legal protections for the poor. And that just rang true with me, huh? That correlation. People in their minds, anyway, think if you have poor credit, that correlates to poor character, huh? Well, and unfortunately, you know, in the after the fiscal crisis, uh, you know, the, some financial reforms went through and some consumer protections went through, uh, consumer financial protections went through, but not for people who are struggling to, to buy a car or to hold on to their car. There are across the country these car title loan outfits that will um, lend people desperate for cash money in return for the title to their car. No reforms, you know, uh, across the country have have solved the problem of people in various states being subject to um, huge predatory rates that they're paying to, to to try to hold on to their car that now this this lender holds the title to, paying over and over again uh, for the car essentially uh, right. to hold on to it. Right. I suppose there's some maybe light at the in the tunnel. Uh, you talk about how, like, uh, 25% of all the bridges in the country are structurally deficient. Maybe one-third of all the roads are uh, in poor condition. I notice that when I'm out on the bicycle, a rough road, you have a much mm -hmm. more tactile experience there. But, you know, here in Los Angeles this past summer was Carmageddon and a widening mm -hmm. of the San Diego Freeway. And there was a lot of talk then that kind of realizing that we're not going to be able to continually add to this infrastructure. We basically can't afford it today. Are more people going to wake up to that and look for alternatives, or are we going to continue to paint ourselves into a corner on that, Anne? I don't very optimistic about where we're headed there. I mean, the, the political wrangling over transportation spending um, is a little bit painful to watch. Isn't it? Um, yes. And even though there's been, you know, tremendous public support for road repair and maintenance and building, even folks who support that and would love to, to have their politicians put more money into the roads aren't finding that they're doing that. Um, there's a resistance to raising the gas tax. There's there's a resistance to even funding the infrastructure that we have and, and keeping it in good shape, a, a political resistance, because what's required is, is usually raising taxes. Um, and so that's unfortunate, and it certainly has squandered an opportunity that we've had over the last few years to, to put money into public transit. 
um, which could have helped to relieve, um, um, you know, in different areas. And obviously every state and region and city is very different. So a solution in one part of the country uh, and in one town and even in one neighborhood is not the same solution in the next one over. But the fact is there are a lot of places where by spending more on public transit, we could have helped drivers by making it easier for everyone to get around. But there's been um, very little political will to push for the spending that we need to do, no matter what our uh, mobility needs are, <laughs> um, no matter w- whether we stay wedded to the car or not. And so that's been a, a little bit of a discouraging um, uh, situation to see play out. It is, isn't it? It's so dysfunctional to observe that, huh? But now we're talking about politics. and I know. Let's that's not a, go there. That's, yeah, that's a tough <laughs> subject. Yeah. Now, uh, my kids like to say, I've got a 16-year-old at home, and he's a, you know, he qualifies to go out and get his license. We're holding his feet to the fire. Uh, you know, we want to see good grades. And we're, anyway, we've set some uh, goals for him to accomplish uh, before we let him get his license. But he's infatuated with the car. At 16, I was too. Mm-hmm. So I can relate, but he'll often talk about, well, how about electric cars, Dad? And thinking that that, you know, is a good argument. And I always say the same thing back to him. I say, I don't want to get hit by an electric car either. <laughs> That's true. And, and if you and- took all of the cars on the road today and replaced them with electric cars, really, have we accomplished that much? I mean, we still have congestion and obesity and so many issues. Huh? Is that a kind of, are we deluding ourselves on that score too? Well, obviously an electric car is better for the environment overall yes, than, yeah. than a gas-fueled uh, vehicle. Yeah. Um, but, but that uh, solution has kind of had a halo effect. Um, and as you've suggested, people are looking at the electric car to solve somehow miraculously all of the problems of the car. Um, there's a notion that if we can just get, get off of foreign oil or if that we can just um, fuel our cars in a different way, all our problems will be solved. But of course, as you mentioned, uh, we still have crash problem. We still have the traffic problem then. We still have, which is, is, you know, in terms of productivity costs to, uh, to businesses and, and to the economy overall is enormous. Um, we still have, um, as you mentioned, the, the, the obesity problem. So we may manage our asthma problem and, and pollution problem a little mm, bit, right. but, but we have other health problems that car dependence has created and, and obesity is the biggest one. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, uh, crash costs there. It makes me think you draw the correlation very succinctly. A crash can lead to personal bankruptcy. And I found that chilling to read that, thinking about how it made me feel vulnerable myself. I mean, you can't control that. Somebody could hit you from behind and it not be your fault. But that was pretty chilling reading about that and... Let's get into that. Insurance isn't covering all the costs, even if I think I'm fully insured, I'm perhaps not? No, no. I think um, there are plenty of people who are underinsured. There are plenty of people who might be insured for um, the property costs, but the health costs that can be associated with uh, a crash can last a lifetime. Sure. So um, if someone loses their job because they can no longer work, Maybe they have disability insurance and maybe they ha- they don't. So, you know, the, the crash itself um, can lead to financial costs, again, w- with respect to the, the property, 
the individual's health health care needs and then um, other needs. You know, so if, if let's say I have a family member who um, has been injured and, and needs some extra care, that may impact the family because a caretaker now can't work, um, must stay oh, home right. to, to care for someone. So there are a lot of ripple effects that uh, we don't think about and that um, you know, when you watch the insurance commercials, you'd get the impression that if you crash your car, you know, the new one will be there, well, instantaneously, right? And you'll be on your way. There seems to be uh, a sense that um, as long as you have insurance, you're going to be fine. And there are also plenty of people that are out there now, particularly in this recession, driving without insurance because they can't afford it. It's a scary it, situation, it, isn't it? It is. It is chilling. Now, maybe it's just my age. I'm getting a little... I'm approaching my 60th birthday, and <laughs> it was it was just a few years ago that time, speaking about the veil lifting, my enthusiasm for cars in general just faded. Uh, the mystique behind the automobile is that something people say that as they get older, they're able to um, they're less vulnerable to the mystique of the car and the advertising and the imagery and all of that. I I think somebody who has a good handle on their personal household finances uh, does find the luster <laughs> comes off the chrome uh, <laughs> because they start to see, you know, cumulatively how much they've spent um, and may continue to spend on automobiles, um, especially as you approach retirement. You know, if, if you could own one less car and, and take that money, you know, I mentioned $9,000 a year, that's, you know, in over 10 years, that's a nice little boost to your retirement nest egg. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think there's, there's um, a sense, of, again, if people really know. And what, one thing we found when we were doing the research for the book is that a lot of people don't really understand how much they're spending to own and operate yes, their vehicles. Right. In my household, I have three cars. I have to confess that. It's one for me, one for mom, and one sitting around for the teenager who thinks it's going to be his. And I'm the one who takes them in one at a time for service and maintenance. And I'm the one who pays that bill when it comes to. And, uh, well, I love to share with my 16-year-old again that he thinks the car is just wonderful. And I, I've been keeping this little tally. Just since August, I've spent $4,000 on just one of my cars. All just little things that mm-hmm. that drive me. I could have a new bike, a really nice bike. In that and a, a nice electric bike. I tried yeah. an electric bike last year in Portland, Oregon. I got very excited, so I've been saving up for my electric bike. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Um, electric assist bike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with respect to you know car enthusiasm and whether people lose it, I mean, there's some people who never lose it. I mean, there are people who yes. are. There are avid enthusiasts. There always will be. Um, one of the, the things that surprised me, though, is that a lot of um, auto enthusiasts have the same desires that um, cyclists and complete streets advocates and transit advocates have, which is um, they'd like to see less traffic. You know, auto yes. enthusiasts are, are people who would love to take their car out for a ride on the weekend. They like the idea of having the open road. <laughs> right. So in some ways, the, the interests of auto enthusiasts align with um, other groups like cyclists in ways that you might surprise you and, and did surprise us. Mm-hmm. The more people you get on bikes, the fewer people on cars, easier to park, easier to drive. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, Anne, I appreciate this time you've uh, dedicated to talking to me today. I have a question on my mind here. Let me pull your leg a little. Carjacked, it's a great title, but 
I mean, the book has, is having <laughs> such an impact on me. You must have had other ideas for a title. Let me suggest, like, train wreck is the wrong metaphor, but right, you paint right. a pretty severe picture of the impact that the automobile has on our lives. What other titles did you think of? I have to say, I think that was the best. Um, yes. you know, a lot of them were a little more, um, it had, had too many positive connotations. And we did want to get across that notion um, that the car has kind of, um, that we've been carried away by the car. So, um, you know, some of the other ones were snoozers like American Journey and I can't even mm. remember some of the other ones. No, so we, once, we, once we latched onto Carjacked, we, we stuck with it and uh, uh, it still works for us. Although there's a new movie out by the same name. so I saw that. I was so, on yeah. Amazon today and uh, that's, that's what comes up first. So exactly. if, if you're Darn searching it. for the book, you'll find a link from the show notes at CDM Cyclist. But uh, have, you, have you like made connections, any surprises from your reading public? Which groups like cyclists would love this book? Any surprises right. on who's really resonated with the book? Well, we really tapped into a growing movement, the the Complete Streets movement, which yes. includes a lot of cyclists, um, but includes a lot of transit riders and people who are interested in in seeing fewer cars on the road and seeing um, you know more sharing of roads. That that was a pleasant surprise to see that you know there were organizations that were out there across the country working towards that goal of of completer streets, and those movements have taken off dramatically in the last couple of years. Yes. Uh, so that's been satisfying, and I've started um, working with um, I've been writing for Streets Blog, um, oh. which is um, uh, an, uh, a website where. Um, the news about the Complete Streets movement and all news transportation related is getting out there. And so that's been exciting for me because I can continue my research and I write for them and try to update. You know, the, the book was, was frustrating in a certain sense. I, I joked afterwards that next time I was going to write a book, it was going to be about ancient Rome or Greece because, you know, so much was changing as we were writing the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's nice to be able to keep keep uh, keep the research and writing fresh and try to um, update some of the material. So mm-hmm. we're still at it. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. I would suggest as we it's it's the holidays. You're thinking of your loved ones and you want to give them a book that will really stimulate them. Uh, Carjacked: The Culture of the Automobile and Its Effects on Our Lives by Catherine and Anne Sisters. Working together, anthropologist and a former investment banker, huh? Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for thank joining you so me on the show today. Really enjoy your book. I appreciate it so much. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, we're back in the studio, and may I say thank you to my sponsor. That would be BikeTiresDirect.com. It's not your father's bicycle store. They're on the web. Check them out, please. BikeTiresDirect.com Well, Anne, what do you think of that? Huh? We covered just a fraction. I had so many notes. I could have asked so many questions of Anne, but time got away from us. And that may happen to you, too. I encourage you. We've got a bike lover, even a car lover in the family. Carjacked would be a great Christmas gift for either one. I've got three copies sitting out under my Christmas tree, and I'm going to hand them out to uh, my bike advocate friends as they come on over during the next few weeks. I think they're going to enjoy it. 
So give her book a try. Come to the website, by all means. Come to the website, cdmcyclist.com, and leave a comment behind, and would love to hear from you. I have links to her columns, her posts on Streets Blog, as she mentioned, and also links to the book. So come on by and leave your two cents behind. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening, and good night.